0: Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive.
1: Hey, guess what? We want to hear from you specifically. We have been doing the Money Advantage podcast for over three years, and we've covered a lot of ground financially speaking. But if you have been listening and you have not heard us answer your burning question, we would love to be able to do that. So we have a great new way for you to be able to communicate your specific thoughts and ask us a question that we can answer live on the show. If you go to themoneyadvantage.com, you can click on the link at the top right-hand corner that says, send us a voicemail, and you can record a voicemail that we can play on the air. Now, this can be done from your desktop or even from a cell phone it's literally so simple and it's a way for you to be able to share your thoughts with us so that we can give the most specific clarifying answers to you because that really energizes us. All right, good afternoon. Welcome back to the Money Advantage podcast. I'm your host Rachel Marshall. With you today, I've got my host my co-host Bruce Wayner, and a special guest. We have Doug Lodmel with us today. We're going to have another fabulous conversation and if you have noticed we've Actually, had us. This is our second conversation for the day. Today, you are in for a treat because this is really going to be an exciting conversation about something that you maybe or maybe have not thought about before and really have a different, fresh perspective. So, what are we talking about today? Asset protection and why it's important to you, how to do it, what type of risks you need to be aware of. And we have somebody here who is very well able to speak to this particular topic because he is a um, he's one of the nation's leading asset protection experts, and he's the owner of Laudmill and Laudmill. So, Doug, thank you for joining us on the show today.
2: My pleasure, Rachel. Great to be here.
1: Awesome. Well, before I kick off with a little bit of an introduction for you, Bruce, I want to bring you into the show as well and get your thoughts as we kind of kick off this new topic today.
0: Well, you know, we we talk to our especially our business net uh, business owners and high net worth professionals about. Um, you know, they have gotten to a point where they have built some wealth, and uh, continuing to build wealth is important through their cash flowing assets, but more, more more important than that, I always tell them is, "You're wealthy now, let's keep you wealthy." <laughs> and one of the biggest uh, determiners of that uh, when people have their wealth come crashing down is because they ha- they don't have their assets protected well enough. And um, unlike many countries, we are a very litigious society here in the United States, and so you can do some relatively simple things. I hope uh, Doug uh, agrees with me. Relatively simple things that can mitigate the kind of risks that you you have when you have wealth, because people don't they don't sue poor people. They they sue people that have money. Good point.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And Bruce, I thank you for that perspective. And and so let's just talk a little bit about Doug and what he does. And then we're going to hear straight from your perspective and and your story as well. But I know that you're the managing partner of Laudmill and Laudmill, one of the nation's leading asset protection law firms. I realize that you're originally from Switzerland, so we'd love to hear about that. And that from an early age that you really Um, showed yourself to be a very bright mind and specifically by taking really complicated subjects and making them very simple. And I think that's just a unique, amazing gift to be able to do that in any field and specifically in law, because I think that can be very complicated and boring and have the eye roll for most people when you start talking about anything that's legal. So very interesting. Then you've done a lot of work with tax and you are now a law firm responsible for protecting over 4 billion in client assets and that definitely says a lot. So, let's go ahead and jump in. Oh, I also want to mention that you have a book and we will talk about that at the end as well, The Lawsuit Lottery, The Hijacking of Justice in America. So, Doug, can you tell us in your own words kind of what brought you into this field in the first place? Kind of where did you get your start in law and asset protection?
2: Um, wow, that's a question not, not too many people ask, that's interesting. Um, so what actually happened is my father's an attorney, and he was, he was the kind of attorney that did a lot of real estate syndications in the 80s, in Arizona. So um, he really wasn't practicing law, he was setting up deals, they were buying raw land. I'm familiar with Arizona down in Chandler, way down where there was just, you know, buy by the acre, hold it for 10 or 20 years, and then sell by the foot. Um, and in, 19, in the mid-80s, we had the SNL crisis. And it was particularly focused here in Arizona and it just crashed everything. And so a lot of his investors, and they used a a limited partnership back then, and they still use those today to set up syndications. So a lot of the partners were wealthy doctors and other people that he worked with um, had financial, personal financial crisis. Someone went bankrupt. um, And when the banks came and they said, hey, the doctor has $500,000 invested in, in your limited partnership. Um, we'd like that because he owes us 500000 My father, as the general partner, said, sorry, you can't get that. Um, you can't come in. You can't foreclose on the asset. This is a long-term asset. It's, it's being held. It's not right. We might sell it in 20 years. And the creditor said, but well, we don't want our money in 20 years. We want it now. And, and, and that gave his clients, who were the investors in those limited partnerships, great leverage. And he watched them settle case after case, mostly with banks, um, because the banks weren't interested in waiting around for 20 years. And um, this caused him back in the 80s to say, hey, wait, that was asset protection. I just watched my clients protect assets when they owed the money. And so he started doing research and that led him down the road to um, really understanding asset protection, um, using traveling offshore, understanding the new laws that were cropping up in the offshore jurisdictions, the Cook Islands and Belize um, that allowed for specific trusts to be created. Just for asset protection purposes, so he was really one of the uh, one of the 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 four most thinkers in the area of asset protection. And so, how I got into it is I followed his footsteps. Um, I went to law school and um, and and uh, joined him, and that's why it's Lobno and no It's my father and myself. Um, well, that's, so, that's yeah, excellent. yeah.
1: So, does he still practice as well?
2: He does not. He has retired. He's living in Lisbon, Portugal uh, on the beach, um, in, you know, which is, uh, where my brother lives. So he's, uh, he, he's still on our weekly calls though. He still loves to hear what's going on with the business, but, uh, I've been running the firm for the past 20 years.
1: Oh, wow. That's great. Okay. Wow. And what an interesting story as well. It sounds like you definitely had a lot of knowledge and exposure to an interesting field with just a, a really enlightening perspective growing up that led you into this, this field. So, uh, yeah. So asset protection, what is that? What would you yeah. classify as asset protection?
2: Yeah, that, that's the $64,000 question, right? I mean, what is it? So, um, uh, you know, Bruce, you said people don't support people. That's asset protection. Don't have any assets, you are asset protected. <laughs> nothing, nothing you need to do, right? Um, the, the, uh, having an asset that is exempt from creditors is asset protection. So in Texas, you can have a home worth $15 million and have a uh, hundred million dollars of debt and they can't touch your home because there's a homestead exemption in Texas that's unlimited, same as in Florida. And believe it or not, a whole bunch of other states have changed their homestead exemption to be unlimited as well. It's an attractive thing that 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 would cause you to wanna consider moving to that state. Um, that's asset protection, an exempt asset. Um, the law has other exempt assets in it. And part of what I do when someone calls and we go over their assets, As I tell them what they have that's already protected. A lot of people have a lot of money in their retirement plans, their ERISA plans, their 401Ks, their defined benefit plans. That's all asset protected. Because under ERISA, which is a federal statute, the US government said, hey, we don't want people um, losing their retirement funds uh, from lawsuits because that puts the burden back on us. So let's protect that. Um, and every state has their own list of exempt assets. So there's federally exempt assets, and then there's state exempt assets. So step one is figure out what you have that's already protected. Then there's usually a delta. There's usually something that, okay, what about my $400,000 in my E-Trade account? Is that asset protected in, sitting in my name? Well, now that is not. And that's where I come in. Because at that point, we start using specific asset protection tools. I mentioned that my dad uh, used a limited partnership in, for syndications, not for asset protection, but that it worked for asset protection. The reason it worked is because a limited partnership is, is a, a charging order protection entity. I call that a cop entity. Um, it actually protects assets because the creditor cannot foreclose on the limited partnership and get the underlying asset. All they can get is a charge which you can kind of think of that as a lien against the the debtors' interest in that limited partnership. LLCs are the same way. LLCs have charging order protection so so those are the things that we start looking at and and ultimately depending on the client's asset and you know, we build up from LLCs to holding companies to the asset protection trust if it's appropriate.
1: So it's interesting then that you're talking about using more than just insurance more than yeah. just a typical estate plan, but in more than just a regular trust, you're really thinking about using a more complex structure. You mentioned LLCs, holding companies, um, and I think you threw another one in there at the end as NASA well. NASA
2: Protection Trust, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: So we'll kind of uncover some of what those mean throughout the show here as well. What's interesting is Bruce and I just did an episode on creditor protection specifically for life insurance just I think was it last week Bruce it was really recent Mm -hmm. so what's interesting is that there are federal protections but then there's also state protections and often the state protection will be something that allows you to take the federal or the state and it depends Mm -hmm. on if it's typical creditor who a typical creditor who comes calling or if it's a bankruptcy so two different situations Um, but how do you see life insurance in terms of this type of protection?
2: Yeah, life insurance is typically falls in that exempt asset category. Um, but again, it depends on the state. So some states, life insurance is absolutely an exempt asset. It is, And the life insurance, it, it, I'll tell you why it's an exempt asset. The life insurance industry is a very, very powerful lobby in, in, in Washington. And so life insurance has benefits that no other investment has because of the fact that they've been able to convince Congress to give them basically special treatment. And so um, for better or for worse, life insurance, it has a special, a special set of rules. You get tax deductions, tax-free returns on, on things that inside a life insurance policy that you would never get if you just invested in the stock market. Um, and then the same is true for asset protection. And it is state and federal driven. So what I do when I look at a life insurance policy, I look at the state. If the state has unlimited exemption for life insurance, I do nothing with that policy. I leave it the way it is. If the state does not have unlimited exemption for life insurance and there is risk, then the life insurance itself, the policy can go in one of the asset protection structures. <coughs> Excuse me. It's easy, either going to go into the holding company or directly into the asset protection trust. And we can we can talk about how all those three fit together because it's kind of like the you know the leg bone connects to the hip bone connects to the.
0: I think know. that would be I, Doug. I think that'd be very valuable to talk about how those three, okay. uh, because the holding company and then the LLCs and the and the, or the or the limited partnerships, how you set all those up. Yeah. Uh, it it it, it on the surface it doesn't seem that complicated, but it really has to be done properly for you right. to get the complete protection. Right. It does, and there's some misnomers out there, and you get a
2: lot of misinformation, and the whole world is talking about. Um, you know, oh, Wyoming LLCs, you, everybody should do that for all their real estate and they're investing in Alabama. And um, There's a lot of confusion, um, series LLCs, land trusts, all this stuff out there. I, I'm gonna simplify it. Land trusts are for privacy only. They have no asset protection benefit whatsoever. So I'm just gonna set those aside. They're, 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 I'm not saying they don't have a place, but they have zero asset protection benefit. Um, LLCs in jurisdictions that are not in the jurisdiction you're investing in the real estate have no value. Because you are, you are, if you're investing in a piece of property in California and you do a Wyoming LLC thinking the Wyoming LLC statute is better than the California LLC statute, and then you go and buy a piece of California real estate and you put it in your Wyoming LLC, when you get in trouble and you get sued, what law is the judge in California going to apply to that Wyoming LLC? California law. So all you've done is double your maintenance costs because you're going to have to pay the California maintenance because you're doing business in California. You have to register the LLC to do business in California, and now you still have to pay the Wyoming fees and the agent fees and all of that. So the lowest level is the LLC level, and that's where we put individual assets. Um, Real estate is probably the most common asset that we use for an LLC, um, because you want to limit the liability that a piece of real estate can have, and, um, and you also want to protect the value. And this gets into a concept of inside liability versus outside liability. When it comes to real estate, there's there's both. Inside liability is the liability that the real estate itself creates. So when you um, have a tenant and they drown in the pool, um, that's inside liability. That now the tenant is suing the owner of the property. Well, if the owner of the property is an LLC, the tenant is suing the LLC. They're not suing you personally. Inside liability is more often than not going to be covered by insurance so it is the lesser of the two liabilities that we worry about because insurance covers it and i believe in insurance and if you're a landlord and you have properties and you know you need great insurance and a good umbrella policy um outside liability is liability that comes from something outside a car accident a dispute with a partner um a bank foreclosing on a different asset of yours that is coming and saying hey what can we get That's the situation I described with my father back in the 80s when his partners had other creditor problems and they were coming to try to get the limited partnership interest that they still had. That liability is coming from the outside trying to get into the LLC. Mm. LLCs are great for that. They're great for protecting from outside liability. Um, and, and so a lot of people, um, will have the common, um, conception that every property you own needs to be in its own separate LLC. And that only applies to inside liability. So it's only relevant to inside liability. So I don't believe that every property you own needs its own LLC, because which all you've done is, is create a whole bunch more paperwork and cost for yourself to maintain 12 LLCs for 12 properties, um, each with $50,000 worth of equity. To me, that's one or maybe two LLCs. So I do believe in separating out properties, but based on equity value, not based on the property number, not the gross number. That's um, and it's, fascinating. Yeah, it, and, and these concepts are, are you know, again, they're, they're confusing because a lot of people just don't understand. Um, and, the, and there's a lot of podcasts and real estate um, um, teaching people how to invest in real estate. Um, and, and, and there's just a lot of confusion out there. Um, so, so the LLC is that first layer. We're going to put anything in that is considered risky—a piece of real estate, a business. Um, you know, um, a, some people have cars that are so valuable that we want to actually protect them, so we put those in LLC. Certainly, if you have an airplane or a boat, anything like that, we go in an LLC, and that would be your base layer. So, if we're drawing a pyramid, that would be at the bottom of the pyramid. And let's just, in our example, say we have five LLCs. Um, three for real estate, uh, one for an airplane, and uh, one for a, a separate business that, that the client runs. Now the question is, what do we do with those? How do we hold them? Do we hold them individually with the client, with the husband and the wife? Do we make the kids? And this gets into another conception that a lot of people have, which is, what's the difference between a single-member LLC and a multi-member LLC? the the conventional wisdom out there is that you should not do single member llc's because they are disregarded and they won't protect your assets well that's not necessarily true they are disregarded they're disregarded as tax entities and so when you do a single member llc it is considered a disregarded entity for tax purposes what that means is you do not have to file a tax return so does that sound like a good thing or a bad thing
1: Well. Could be either, depending on the situation, but I'm I'm right. thinking probably more so good so you don't have to pay the tax.
0: Well, yeah, good, right? I mean,
2: if you had 15 LLCs, that's 15 tax returns, right? If I could say, well, we have 15 LLCs because we need them for protection, but you have zero tax returns associated with them, that's a good thing. So your answer is right. And and you're right, Rachel, it could be a bad thing, but it could be a good thing. Um, so So single member LLCs, um, a lot of people will come to me and they'll have, they'll have five, those five LLCs at the base layer set up and they'll make them all multi-member because they heard somewhere they shouldn't do single member. They're doing five tax returns and their accountant is charging them for five tax returns each year. Mm. Um, so this is where we get the holding company concept involved. So what if we put a, one company that is at that at the middle layer of the pyramid that actually holds all five of those LLCs? And then we can change those LLCs or create those LLCs as single member disregarded entity LLCs. That means we have five LLCs, five legal entities for protection purposes, but we have zero tax returns associated with them. Those LLCs in turn are held. And now this is where it's very important to have a multi-member entity at the holding company level. So the holding company could be a limited partnership. It could be an LLC this is also where we can choose our jurisdiction so i said it doesn't do you any good to do a wyoming llc for a piece of california real estate that's true but when we get to the holding company level that's not holding a piece of california real estate anymore it's now holding an llc now we do want to pay very close attention to the jurisdiction we choose for a holding company so there are some good ones and there are some bad ones Um, the good ones are kind of the normal suspects Um, nevada Wyoming, Delaware, Arizona, Alaska, those are some of the good ones. Um, I particularly prefer Arizona. Um, I kind of like to be uh, off the radar of the normal you know high profile Wyoming and Nevada. Um, the statute in Arizona is identical to Wyoming, and Arizona. I mean to Wyoming and Nevada, and the case law in Arizona has been stellar. Arizona is very, very good about protecting. Um, and by the way, back in the 80s, my, my father's story, those were all Arizona limited partnerships. Mm. So, um, so we had, you know, we, we, we ended up with a real affinity towards an Arizona limited partnership. So that's normally what I will use as a holding company. So it holds the LLCs. The LLCs hold the individual risky assets. And how many LLCs we have, again, depends on how many, how many buckets we want to create to separate the risk of those LLCs. How many buckets do we need? Um, and again, that depends on the value. So if you have somebody that has a million dollar strip mall, um, that needs its own LLC, no doubt about it. Um, if so you is some, that
1: the threshold for you, a million per uh, no, LLC.
2: It, yeah, that's a great question, Rachel. No, it's more like a half a million is the threshold. I kind of like a half a million. So if somebody has three houses, um, three rental houses, each with a hundred thousand dollars of equity to me, that's one LLC. Okay um if they have four that's still one llc once we get to five and and, and if they say hey i'm going to be building and now every year i'm going to be adding another one then we will we're i'll work with them and i'll say well here's here's the risk here's the threshold and we'll decide and we'll say okay is it is are you comfortable with three hundred thousand dollars of equity four hundred thousand five hundred thousand six hundred thousand it's not a hard line in the sand it has a lot to do with the, the client's risk tolerance
1: Okay. Um, and
0: and the, 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 Doug, the reason the reason for that is because a good umbrella liability p- policy will cover that equity.
2: Yeah, uh, Bruce, this is that's a really good point. Inside liability is almost always going to be covered by insurance, and the only reason we want to separate the um, the LLCs is for inside liability. So if I have ten million dollars of value in ten LLCs and um, or or I have $10 million worth of value in one LLC and we have an outside creditor coming in, it doesn't matter whether it's one LLC or 10 LLCs. The outside liability is gonna be protected the same. But if we have a mold claim inside of one of those LLCs, that is like, I had a client actually, he had $3 million properties in one, actually he had them in the three series LLCs in California. California doesn't recognize series LLCs, He thought he had done the right thing. He went to his attorney. He had a mold claim that was going to be a $5 million claim, and he only had a million dollars of insurance. He thought, well, okay, so only the one property is at risk. Uh, The attorney told him, no, California doesn't recognize series LLCs. They're going to consider these all in one LLC. So he had $3 million worth of equity in one LLC and a $5 million claim. That was a problem right so yeah. that's that's why and but that was inside liability that was mold inside the property that exceeded his insurance uh, to your point Bruce if he had had a five million dollar umbrella policy even that would have been covered so I, I'm, I'm a strong believer in umbrella policies they're super so cheap
1: yes and
2: and and I mean why would you not for twelve hundred dollars a year want an extra five million dollars of coverage I mean yes why yeah.
1: yes and honestly umbrella is one of those almost I mean, it's almost a no-brainer to get as much yes. liability coverage as you can get. And for somebody who maybe even doesn't have that many assets, a $2 million liability policy is something that they would provide to you. And that's somewhere in maybe, I don't know, the $300 range
2: or so. so- exactly. Right. A- almost nothing. Now, now here's, there's one misconception about umbrella liability policies that I think is important to understand. Um, they call them umbrella, and it makes you think that they're going to cover like everything. All they cover is what's already covered by other policies. Mm -hmm. So, really, what they are is um, um, they're they're just extensions of your existing coverage. Mm -hmm. So that's why to get an umbrella, you have to have a certain level of auto insurance, home insurance, and all the other insurances, because they're only going to cover excess on something that's already covered. Mm -hmm. They're not going to cover something that was never covered in the first place. So, if you have a, uh, a an employee lawsuit, that comes um your umbrella policy is not going to do anything for you because you don't have insurance for that. It wasn't covered in your other types of insurance, and so just because you have an umbrella policy, they're not going to just decide to pick up your employment related issue. Um so while I'm a big believer in them, they they still are just limiting their focus. they They yes. only cover what's risking.
1: That's actually a really good point for anyone to hear you saying as well. And so that is why there's underlying limits on things like your auto and your homeowners, and it extends that liability protection for somebody who doesn't doesn't have businesses or real estate and then you can definitely have liability policies having an umbrella in that capacity as well but make sure you have it you know what your umbrella is covering and it's it is yeah. like the umbrella over top of other insurance policies which right. cover your assets so it's like right, the, right. Yeah, that's the a second great way level to think up. About
2: it yeah the only thing it's umbrelling is the other other policies so little umbrellas and then one big umbrella But if it's not already covered, if it's over here on the side, the umbrella is not gonna do it. And that's where asset protection comes in because that's where we, with asset protection, what we're doing is we're taking the assets themselves and we're saying, hey, you can't reach them. We're taking them off the table. What insurance does is it looks at the liability side and says, hey, if you get into a car accident, we'll cover you up to your policy limits. So insurance focuses on liabilities Asset protection focuses on assets, so and it doesn't matter the liability. It could be any liability, anything in the world, because we're taking the asset and saying, hey, now you can't reach the asset. And that causes the client to be in a position, a much stronger position, to negotiate. Um, and, And again, probably the key point of asset protection is to understand that it's leverage for you. Um, And, and the reason you need this leverage is because we have a very messed up legal system that is slanted heavily towards the plaintiffs and the plaintiff's attorneys. Um, It is a massive industry with literally trillions of dollars going through it. And, um, and, and 80% of that money goes to the attorneys and all the participants inside and not to the, to the, to the injured parties, so to speak. Um, Mm. and, And they Bruce, they're not going to sue you if you don't have any money. Right. If you have money, you need to pay attention to this. And it can be as simple as one LLC. I have a lot of clients that are they're buying their first property. All they need is one LLC and, an, and, and, and uh, an umbrella policy. Or as complicated as a fully foreign asset protection trust and a holding company and a foreign account. And I mean, it, it, it depends on what you have, what you need.
1: So you were continuing on this trajectory that I think we interrupted a little bit, and I think we want to get back to. So you mentioned okay. kind of the knee bone connected to the um, yeah. the leg bone, the leg bone. Yeah. Anyway, so so you would mention the LLC at the bottom, and then you said going up this triangle. Then we have the holding company, yeah. and I believe that we still have asset protection um, trust to cover.
2: Yeah. Okay. So so the holding company is going to create multi-member. Uh, protection, additional layer of charging order protection. So you have cop entity at the bottom, limited liability companies, held by another cop entity, another charging order protection entity, which is gonna be, in my case, I prefer the Arizona limited partnership. Some people use Wyoming LLCs, that's okay. So so something around those. Um, So from there we say, okay, is that enough? And the answer is, is it may be enough. It may be enough. And if you have a total of six hundred thousand dollars of assets, that's probably where I'd stop. I'd say that's enough with some good insurance. However, when you get to the million and two million and three million dollars worth of assets, um, having those entities is not necessarily enough because remember, you're not totally home free with those entities. You can block a creditor from foreclosing and reaching the asset. What you cannot do is is eliminate the creditor they can still get that lien or that charge against your holding Mm -hmm. company. So if you want to eliminate the creditor, you have to have one more tool, and that's called an asset protection trust. And what an asset protection trust is, is it's a trust that is set up with special provisions which allow the trust to to ensure that there are no creditors that can reach the assets of the trust. And this type of trust is called a self-settled spendthrift trust. All self-settled means is that you're creating it for yourself. So if you know, I think before the show, Rachel, you mentioned that you have a revocable living trust, like an estate planning trust. Mm-hmm. That's a self-settled trust. You're creating it for yourself and you're the beneficiary. Mm-hmm. And in that kind of trust, you're also the trustee. So in a self-settled trust, that's great. Um, what that trust is not is a spendthrift trust. And what a spendthrift trust is, is a trust that has special provisions in it, which say, Hey, if these kind of people are trying to reach the assets of the trust, trustee is is, is commanded, is in the document and under the law, if you set it up right, to not distribute the assets of the trust. And who are those people? Creditors. Um, and a revocable living trust can't be that because it's revocable. So a judge can always just say, well, Rachel, uh, it's nice that you put all those provisions in your revocable living trust, but it's also revocable. So I'm just going to tell you to revoke it that means the trust goes away. All the assets come back into your name. Creditors can reach all the assets.
1: Okay.
2: So, so asset protection trusts are irrevocable, meaning you're putting them in, and 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 you're you're not giving yourself the power to just turn around, and take them out, or revoke the trust. Um, and they're set up with very strong Spencer provisions. So this is where it starts to get a little complicated, especially as a consumer trying to understand this world. Um, but I'm going to simplify it there's two ways to do it. There's three ways to do it. You can do it offshore, and this was the first way. 1984, the Cook Islands was the first jurisdiction that drafted an actual statute which allowed for a self-settled spendthrift trust, not just a self-settled trust, but one that had those all-powerful creditor protections. So, So 1984, the Cook Islands created that statute. People started going down there and using that statute, creating these trusts. A lot of US attorneys at the time um, said this isn't going to work. The U.S. is totally against this. It's against public policy. These are going to just get broken. Um, that's exactly what didn't happen. They didn't get broken. They worked. Um, finally, Alaska, in 1989, said, "Well, gosh, not only are they working, but uh, these jurisdictions, of which there's now about two dozen offshore, um, are getting all this business. Why don't we get it? I mean, we're used. We're in the asset protection industry already. You know, we already do LLCs and limited partnerships." why don't we create a statute? So they did. And, um, Nevada and Wyoming, not to be left behind immediately passed statutes. And we now have 19 U S states that have passed a domestic asset protection trust statute. And that statute is modeled off of the foreign statute. And it does the exact same thing. It allows somebody to create a self settled spendthrift trust, but here's the difference. And this is why jurisdiction is so important. And, you know, um, my favorite movie is The Matrix, and 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 when you know the first scene when the when the the agents walk up and the cop says, you know, don't give me any of that jurisdiction crap, and he's you know, so it's all about jurisdiction. So here's the problem with the domestic trusts: they all are still in the jurisdiction of our overriding federal government. And Article Four, Section One of the U.S. Constitution says the states must grant full faith and credit to the laws and judicial proceedings, which includes judgments from the other states. So even though Alaska can pass a statute that says that you can set up a self-settled spendthrift trust and protect your assets, they can't disregard a judgment from California or New York or Florida or Wyoming or anywhere else, and neither can any of the other states. And so while we have a lot of states that have passed these statutes, and I'm not saying these statutes have no merit or these trusts have no merit, what I am saying is that the case law around this has been kind of the opposite of the foreign case law. Um, mm-hmm. These trusts have by and large failed when pressed because of the, of the fact that they can't just disregard a judgment from another state. Um Interesting. so there's quite a few cases that, that, that and, and so I'm not a big fan of the domestic only. However, there is a big difference in the cost of setting up an offshore and the maintenance of an offshore trust and the cost and maintenance of a domestic trust. If you set up an offshore trust, you have to file a form with the IRS every year called Form 3520 and 3520A. These are very extensive, full balance sheet disclosures of, the, of, of all the assets of the trust, all the people who play all the roles in the trust. Um, in some cases, a full copy of the trust itself it has to be done every year. The penalty for not doing it is, 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 is big. Uh, 35% of the assets of the trust So, so it's, it's, it's a serious thing to set up an offshore trust, Um, that costs money. The offshore trustee costs money. You're also not going to be in control of the trust because for it to work, the offshore trustee needs to be in control of the trust. So I tell people, if you're the kind of person that thinks you need an offshore trust, then you're also the kind of person that needs to budget at least $10,000 a year to maintain it. um, And be comfortable with taking your money and putting it in control of the trustee offshore. Um, and likely taking your money and also putting it offshore. And that means Swiss bank accounts, which adds a whole other layer of complexity. Now, if you're really defending against a big creditor, is that worth doing? Absolutely, it's worth doing because there's nothing stronger than an offshore trust and and having your assets offshore. But for for probably 98% of the people listening to this podcast, that's too much. Mm -hmm. Um, It's too expensive. It's too much compliance. They don't want to be out of control of their assets. Um, It's just just a a burdensome structure. So the third way to do an asset protection trust is a hybrid trust. And I use a hybrid trust called the bridge trust. And what the bridge trust is, is it is a foreign trust. It's registered offshore. So it has, you go through all the due diligence. You do all the formalities of the offshore trust but then you bridge it back into the US for the purposes of the IRS. So from the IRS perspective, it is considered a domestic trust. What that means is no 3520, no foreign trust compliance. Um, You don't have to be out of control of the trust. The client can be the trustee of their own bridge trust. And that bridge trust is at the top of our pyramid that we just built. It owns the majority interest in the holding company which in turn owns all the underlying LLCs. Um, And so that kind of completes the pyramid. And, you know, some people don't need the whole pyramid. They just need, like I said, one LLC because they're starting. Some people need the whole pyramid with the bridge trust at the top. And a few clients actually need the foreign trust. You know, they're just in a situation where we actually are ready for that.
1: So two questions with this. One, well, a a million, but two that are top of mind You mentioned if you have a big creditor coming after you. So the question is, you probably would need to already have these things set up before the creditor comes pressing, not after, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. That's, I I mean, uh, that is the most important point, right? Because there's a little concept in our law called fraudulent transfer. And what fraudulent transfer means is that if you transfer, and very important, you understand what the word transfer means. It does not mean physically move. What it means is legally transferred title. So if you sign over your house to your brother because you think you went to Vegas and you lost a bunch of money at the Venetian and now they're after you and you sign your house over to your brother, that's a transfer. And if you did that with an intent to delay, hinder, or defraud a creditor, which in our example is the Venetian hotel that wants their money, then that transfer can be reversed So the courts can just go, hey, we're going to undo the transfer because that transfer was done with an intent to delay, hinder or defraud this legitimate creditor. Mm -hmm. So your point, Rachel, is if you already have the creditor and you call me, it's a different conversation completely than if you don't have the creditor and you call me. So it is very, very important that you set this up before you have the creditor. Um, and, And that means, you know, at some point, my philosophy is. As soon as you need your first LLC, that's when you should start building your structure. And Mm -hmm. don't wait. Um, Not only that, but if you you, uh, get the right advice early, I guarantee you're gonna build a different structure than if you don't. If you do it yourself and you listen to a whole bunch of different conflicting advice and you just kind of throw a dart and say, okay, well, I'm just gonna follow this guy's plan. Um, and you start doing things, you and this happens a lot, you may end up calling someone like me five years later and going, "Okay, well, I did all this stuff on my own. Um, and, and a lot of it has to be undone. It was actually working against you. Um, you know there's all sorts of, of things that can go wrong if you if you don't get it right. Mm-hmm. It's so much better just to call and have an analysis and understand even if you're at the beginning stages of building your wealth. Definitely, if you're at the middle stages or at the advanced stages, you know you're you're our age and you already have accumulated you know, a couple of million dollars worth of assets and you've never done anything about it. Definitely, it would be time to call.
0: Hey, yeah, I think that. Go ahead, Bruce. Doug um, defrauding a creditor. Yeah, I understand that totally. What about a potential creditor? Yeah, well, the person hasn't. Maybe something has happened. Let's go back to the mold case. Yeah. In California. Yeah. Let's say um, they haven't, they haven't filed a civil lawsuit, but they call you up and they say, Hey, we just discovered a lot of mold in in this apartment complex. And we think that you should do something about it. You drag your feet. You're like, Oh, you know, maybe they're not going to be happy. They might sue me later on. Is it actual the, the file of the lawsuit or the actual event? Okay, Bruce, that is a
2: fantastic, fantastic question. Um, uh, When you look at fraud of transfer, it's the intent of the transfer. So it it doesn't matter if the events occurred or it is gonna occur. If the court can prove that you made the transfer to delay, hinder, defy the creditor, um, that's enough. So if you if even though you haven't been sued yet, if it's already happened and and you think you're going to get sued and because you think you're going to get sued, you make the transfer, it's going to be considered a fraudulent transfer. Um, So there's not a you know, definitely there's a bright line in the sand of once you've been sued, then it's very obvious. But but even when the incident has occurred, so um, but but here's another really important point. It does not mean and a lot of people call me and say, yeah, I talked to an attorney. Um, I had an employee walk out of my office and as he walked out the door, he said, you're, you haven't heard the last of me. I'm going to sue you, you know, into, into the ground. Um, And I I called my local attorney and they said, Oh, well, you're on notice. That's it. You can't do anything. Um, That's not necessarily true at all. So just because something has happened or threatened to have happened, or even if you've already been sued, there are things that can be done. So it, 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 it's, um, I would still encourage anybody at any stage to call and say, okay, you know, is there anything that can be done? Um, In some cases, there's exemption planning that can be done. So if we can go back to the concept we brought up in the very beginning, which is those exempt assets, that's different than asset protection. And exempt assets don't necessarily have the same fraudulent uh, transfer requirements. In other words, you could put assets into an exempt asset status, for the purpose of retirement, even after a lawsuit has occurred, and it may not be deemed a fraudulent transfer. Whereas if you put them in a foreign asset protection trust, it may be deemed a fraudulent transfer. So, um, so there's it gets very complicated, um, and it really is very fact dependent, which is why I say this is not an area that's a real DIY area. I, I don't encourage yeah. a lot of DIY on this. I mean, it's just too complicated. Um, I don't do my own root canals if I need it. I mean, I could I could read up on it and I, you know, but it's just it's just you silly, can, you, right? You can you can YouTube it. Yeah, yeah I can YouTube there's, it. I don't do it myself.
1: <laughs> there's a lot of things like this, and honestly, I was gonna bring up the whole DIY almost movement that I feel yeah. happens because there's so much education and so many videos right. and so much that you can find online about stuff. The problem is you don't know if it's the right information and you don't know how to connect all the dots together. And you don't know if you are the expert, even if you do follow the YouTube video. So absolutely the same way you wouldn't do uh, your own root canal. I was going to say, it sounds like you want to help people at the beginning of the journey and have a relationship with them that moves through their life as they're building and creating wealth, not just at a one-time life event.
2: Oh yeah, that is my entire focus of my practice. So um, the way I set up my practice, it's fee based, so I can always tell people exactly what something costs. I never just open the open the billing, and you know, you just you, all of a sudden you're just getting billed by your attorney these un, un unspecified amounts of money every month forever. Um, I charge a very reasonable annual fee, and that covers all communication with my clients. Um, so I never bill by the hour. And my clients stay with me for years and years and years. And oftentimes, they start the journey, uh, again, when they're just beginning. Um, and they end the journey you know, at, with with a lot of money. And, and they call me and they go, hey, I'm finally retiring. I've got $8 million in my plan. And I'm set. Do I still need this? And then we have that conversation. And by the way, the answer is, yeah, you need it more than ever because you can't replace that money now. So right. you want to hold on to it. Um,
1: That's excellent.
2: And your plan... The one thing about asset protection is a little bit like concrete. You know, concrete never stops hardening. You pour it and, and it just never stops. Um, the concrete they find in Rome in the Colosseum is literally still hardening to this day. It's, it, it can never stops getting stronger. Asset protection is the same way. When you put something in place, you start a clock ticking and every day that goes by, your plan gets stronger. Why? Because they, the, 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 the time passes. And then if you set up your plan 10 years ago, and then you have this incident and this creditor, that creditor can't go looking back 10 years and say, hey, your intent was to delay, hinder, or defraud me 10 years ago. The answer is, I didn't know you 10 years ago. I had mm-hmm. no idea I was going to be in this situation with you. So, um, a- and there's also an actual statute under the federal bankruptcy code, which actually highlights 10 years as a look-back period for transfers into self-settled spencer of trust. So 10 years is kind of a magic number. Um, uh, and so, yeah, you really, I would much rather uh, get a client early in the journey, even if they're just beginning and and grow with them over the years. Um, and, and my practice is definitely not transactional. I'm not a fan of a transactional, I'll do this for you. Good luck. You know, um, first of all, there's follow-up that needs to get done. There's annual reviews that need to happen. And then there's constant changes in in your life. Forever. I mean you never stop changing. Um and Absolutely. to be able to have a relationship, um, it's the most gratifying thing about my practice is that my clients, I know them for so long and when I get on the phone, it's really like talking to old friends all the time. Um and, it, That's and awesome. it's Yeah, I mean I I being a lawyer was not on my list of things because nothing that even my though my father was an attorney I had nothing good to say about lawyers um he and, he and he didn't really practice law right he was doing real estate deals um and and so but what i've learned is that one my conception was completely wrong most lawyers are really fantastic people um and then this area of law is actually an area of law which encourages a, a type of relationship with your client that is very very supportive i mean i'm really there to support them And I appreciate them a great deal and they appreciate me and and it it causes long term relationship. I think the same is true with everybody important in your life. Um, I wouldn't buy insurance without a lot of advice. Mm -hmm. I don't, I I am not unsophisticated and insurance is complicated. You really have to understand it. I would not buy it without support. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't just go I'll figure this out myself. so all the areas of my life, I think, and in, in, in everybody's life, everybody I know who's very successful, they have developed a team around them. Absolutely. Experts, and they rely on those experts. They are not just, I'll figure every one of these areas out, because as smart as we think we are, you just can't do everything.
1: Yeah, we always say wealth is a team sport, and it really, really yeah. is. It's not yeah. something to DIY. It's not something to guess at. It's really the surrounding yourself with the right people who think like Mindedly, who are working right. together for the same goals in your interests, are just extremely valuable. Now, I feel like we could talk for a really long time still. Yeah. But tell sure. us about your book and and what is the the hijacking of justice in America? I think you alluded to it a little bit earlier uh, yeah. in the conversation. But go ahead and share us share with us your book.
2: Okay, so um, the legal system. Our forefathers, our, our founding fathers, um, were mostly lawyers, and they understood the abuse that the legal system w- was was very capable of turning into. Um, and so they really set up these pillars of, of uh, to, to dissuade lawsuits. Um, you couldn't have contingent fee attorneys. That was illegal in this country. You, mm-hmm. could, you could never participate in the lawsuit with your client. Um, attorneys weren't allowed to advertise. They didn't want you advertising, drumming up lawsuits because our founding fathers did not like lawsuits. They wanted to discourage them at every stage. Um, the ethical rules for lawyers were so strict that if you ambulance chase, literally followed somebody into the hospital and said, gave them your card and said, hey, call me, that was not only going to get you disbarred, but thrown in jail. And that's how seriously we took that. And then the rules of civil procedure that um, to file a lawsuit were very strict. You had to be very clear of what you were filing a lawsuit for. And if you didn't have it all figured out, you were going to get thrown out of court immediately. So I call those the four pillars of our legal system. All four have been completely dismantled. 1964, Maine was the last state to get rid of the no contingent uh, fee attorneys. Um, So now every state allows for attorneys to participate in the lawsuit with the client. Um, Not only that, but the client doesn't have to pay anything. There's no risk on the client. If they lose, they don't owe the attorney back the money. Um, Advertised in 1977, Arizona uh, was the state that had the Supreme Court case, which allowed attorneys to start advertising. And Supreme Court tried to put very strict rules around that and say you can only do this, and now it's turned into what we see on TV and the billboards today. So it, that's out the window. Uh, the rule, the ethical rules of civil procedure, were changed in 1984, and the definition of what was unethical—they they just slipped in a word that made it absolutely irrelevant. So now I haven't heard of an attorney being held responsible ethically and being disbarred for anything related to what would have gotten them thrown in jail, you know, 50 years ago. Mm. And even the rules of civil procedure have been um, melted down to the point where you can sue with absolutely no reason whatsoever. Get in, get into discovery, not have your case thrown out, and just go on these massive fishing expeditions. Um, So what that means is that, Rachel, um, I could sue you. You cannot get it thrown out of court. You're going to have to hire an attorney, and you're going to spend a whole bunch of money and at some point, your attorney's going to say, look, you know, if, if it's going to cost you less to just pay this guy than it is for me to go to trial with this. And I can't even guarantee we're going to win a trial. To me, that's called extortion.
0: Mm-hmm. That, that is
2: literally the definition of extortion. That's what I think our legal system has become. It has become a, a, a system to extort money because we, we, the final coup de grace of the plaintiff's attorneys is, is that we do not have a loser pay system. Every other developed legal system in the world, if you go to Europe, if I sue you and you run up $100,000 of legal bills and you win, I got to write you a check for $100,000 because I got to make you whole from when we started because you won. In the US, we don't do that. So if you run up $100,000 of legal bills and then you end up winning, you're still out the 100,000. And it's that uh, one little piece that allows the lawyers to use our system to extort asset, extort money. Um, so, so you have people suing all the time for, for very questionable reasons that are um, not ethical and, and uh, um, um, just extorting money because it's just easier to pay, pay you off than to go through the next two or three years of depositions and trial. And that's what the book's about. Wow.
0: So I, what I, is oh go ahead, Bruce? I experienced this. Uh, I, I got a visceral reaction Doug uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, on this because I experienced this probably in 2003 or four. I, I was in California. I owned an auto auto repair place in California, and I got a phone call one day, and this guy said, "You know, we are law, the law firm of X, Y, and Z." And we have discovered that there is runoff into the sewer system in, in the San Diego County. And we are going to uh, do a, a lawsuit and we're going to bring everybody that owns auto repair places into this lawsuit. And we want to make you aware of it. However, if you pay us $2,500 today, we will exempt you from the lawsuit. Right. And I, I, extortion. I, that's exactly what it is or what it Straight was. Up. Um, I uh, luckily uh, was, a, you know, um, a little experienced with this, and I just told him, go, "Go ahead, and put me in a lawsuit. Put me in the lawsuit. Yeah, 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 so, yeah because, I'll, be, I'll be fine with that."
2: Yeah. Well, you know what's happening today is that lawyers are usually using Google Earth. They're not even bothering to go out of their office. They're they're Google Earthing your business and they're seeing if they have you have a ramp for ADA compliance, America with Disabilities Act compliance, and they're suing you from a Google Earth saying you're out of ADA compliance. Da 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 da. I mean, it, it's it's just a out of control system. It could be changed in an instant with
0: just put loser pay in. That's it. That was gonna be that was gonna be my I next which is almost a comment. Um the reason it's not gonna change in in a second though is the legislatures are normally do have law backgrounds are or, or lawyers themselves. that get into these and you know it's kind of the an old boys network is like well, well the why? trial change attorneys
2: money. the the trial attorneys um uh, give money equally to both sides so there's there's not really any um, oh if the, you know one party gets into power where well, this is going to change no they they give money to both sides to make sure this doesn't change uh tort reform has had a very difficult time passing there are some states with some limited tort reform um mostly states where the doctors literally said we're moving out. You guys can just go without doctors because if you're going to sue us out of existence, why would we? So so in some limited instances, they put tort reform around medical just so they could keep their doctors. That's how bad the lawyers were. Uh, if you remember back in the 80s, um, every manufacturer of airplanes, Piper, Cessna, Beechcraft, they all quit making airplanes. And the reason they did is because they were being sued out of existence for manufactured defects on planes that were 40 years old, that clearly had no defect. Um, But this is the problem with leaving the lawyers in control of everything. And Congress had to come in and pass legislation to get them to start making airplanes again and not be out of business. So um, unfortunately, the little guy has very little leverage. You don't have anybody in Congress that can lobby for you. To me, what asset protection is, is it's the counterbalance. It's leveling the playing field. You're just saying, hey, okay, if you already have a system that is so slanted in your favor, so likely for you to win. Why don't I just give myself a little counterweight here and make my assets unavailable to you? So at least when you take a, a, and try to suck me into that system, which is, which is slanted in your favor, I can say, okay, but guess what? It's going to be real hard for you to collect on this. Um, and so it's, it's a counterbalance. It's, it's not, shouldn't be used to make you feel like you have a license to go out and do stupid things. Um, it should just be used to balance the the scales, and I think it does a really good job. I know, in my experience with my clients, it does an incredible job of balancing that. If they did something wrong, believe me, they're going to end up paying, but they're going to pay a reasonable amount that's reflective of what they did wrong. If they did nothing wrong, then usually they're 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 going to get out of it completely because the other side has no leverage.
1: This is a really really fascinating big picture view of. A problem that probably most people are not necessarily that aware of. We're not walking around thinking, what if I get sued tomorrow? But at the same time, you're saying that this is a really real concern. And the more wealth that you build, the more time and money freedom that you build in your life and put the systems in place so that you are going down that path and that journey, this can become a real problem. And it's not, I just love how you share that at the end. This is not a license to go do bad things. This is For the upstanding person who is doing all the right things to protect themselves against a system that is against them (laughs) so that counterbalance view was just really really profound and i think an amazing place to leave this conversation an amazing note to leave this on i think again we could talk for a really long time but i hope that if someone's listening today if you're listening to this conversation and you're saying wow i just never really considered before my need for protecting my assets." the, from that external liability, that external risk, where you said the inside liability or the outside liability, I've never thought about that outside liability to this degree before. Now you have some solutions. You have an answer. So can you please share with us um, real briefly, how can someone reach out and get in touch with you and find
2: you? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a ton of information. My website is, is really robust, lots of videos, and that's just my last name, Lodmel, L-O-D-M-E-L-L dot com. Um, I would start there and just, you know, educate yourself. Um, I certainly am happy to speak with anybody listening to this and they can reach me directly, um, 800-231-7112. Or you can just email me, um, uh, directly. My email is just my name, doug at lodmail.com. Um, and just say, Hey, I heard you on the podcast and, um, and, and I want to compliment you guys. I've done a lot of podcasts. Um, this one is excellent. You um, you 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 guys are asking the questions that, that listeners want to hear. Um, that's not always the case. Um, uh, you guys, but you guys are thinking through and going, okay, what do they want to know? And you're asking the right questions. So I really appreciate that about about this. Thank you for, for doing it that way. I, it makes it makes it a lot more enjoyable for me.
1: Well you were excellent at communicating and sharing your ideas and just the way that you helped connect all the pieces together I think that it was very obvious and apparent that you are wonderful at making that very complex gigantic concept small and understandable and broken down into a conceptual way a framework that makes sense and I think anyone listening definitely sees a need where they probably were not aware of it before. Yeah. So thank you very much for joining us on the show today.
2: It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Awesome. Well, if you are listening, go over to lodmail.com. We'll have the phone number and email address also in the show notes. You can reach out to Doug specifically there. And I know that they have a large team as well to support you with any of your asset protection needs. And remember that there's no too small. You really do want to start as soon as you have the need for that first LLC to really be able to grow with your time and money freedom building journey. Now, that being said, I do want to let you know as well that there will be a um, a podcast or show notes on our website at themoneyadvantage.com that will have more details and information about this show today. And then we also have the opportunity for you to be able to reach out to our advisor team, get on our calendar, have an introductory call. If you're interested in figuring out how to keep and protect more of the money you make, build Wealth and really have more in your control and build cash flow so that you can build time and money freedom. We'd love to be a part of that conversation and that journey. You can do that as well at themoneyadvantage.com. Now, in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few and build a life and business that you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside.
0: Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com.